seminary, I had a mentor, professor by the name of Howard Hendricks, and he once said, Christianity has always done best in a hostile environment. Christianity has always done worse in a favorable environment. He said in one section of India there was serious persecution, but the pastors reported that the church was just like the book of Acts, flourishing in the midst of persecution. He said one church kept growing from one service, then two, then three, then four, then five. One of the elders said, we've got a problem. Some people are coming to more than one service. We've got to stop them in order to make more room. So they announced that if you went to more than one service on Sunday, they would, you'd be asked to leave. The crowding problem continued, so they had to ask people to only come to church every other Sunday. And then Dr. Hendricks added, that's just how it is in Dallas, but for entirely different reasons. And then he closed. The question occurs, how do we launch a persecution? The first example ever in the Bible of the church being persecuted is our passage today in Acts 4. Now, in the previous chapter, if you were with us, God, he God heals a man who had been paralyzed from, from, from birth. He had uh, been a beggar at the temple gates, and everybody knew him. They'd seen him for decades, 40 years. And so when he gets healed and he's leaping and running and praising God, it's a big deal. And the crowds came running. Peter stands up to preach, thousands come to faith, and that's when it happens, the persecution begins. Now, if you will stand with me, we're going to read this amazing passage. So imagine that you are there. I'm in Acts 4, and I'll begin in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man had been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone who was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, 
they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Church, this is God's holy word. Please be seated. All righty, can you see it, Peter and John? They're not proclaiming the healing that they had been the instruments of. They're not proclaiming themselves. They're not proclaiming their ministries. They are proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. Now, church, we've got to always keep in mind that the early church had a central message, Jesus and the resurrection, the risen Jesus, crucified, resurrected. Now, several months earlier, these same religious leaders had 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 Jesus executed by the Romans. And don't you imagine that they thought, okay, finally we can shut up all this talk about Jesus and stop this early movement about Jesus. Don't you know that they were finally relieved after that happened? But it hadn't stopped, has it? Those followers, far from disappearing into the hills, they were now multiplying right here in Jerusalem and still preaching Jesus, and they were greatly annoyed. They were frustrated to no end. Now, keep in mind that Luke points out, these were the Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees were a big popular movement, but the power was with another religious group, the Sadducees. Had a little bit of a different theology, and uh, they had money, and they had relationships with the Romans, and they had the clout. This included Annas, the informal high priest. He'd actually been kind of kicked out by the Romans, but all the Jews considered him the high priest. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, uh, others in the high priestly family. I mean, these were the guys that had Jesus executed in the Gospels, weren't they? And here they are. Oh, here it comes again. These guys are still preaching Jesus. And that's when the persecution begins in the Bible of the Christian church, right here in Acts 4, and it hasn't stopped ever. It has gotten worse and worse and worse to the extent that the last century, the 20th century, had more Christians martyred for their faith than the previous 19th centuries put together. Now, CNN doesn't cover it when some believing pastor in Indonesia is killed for his faith. They don't cover that. And it's happening all over the world. And we're going to both look at the first example of persecution and then parlay that to see what's going on around the world today. So these um, religious leaders show up, and before we get into the passage, verse 4 that I just read stated that many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, our English word, man or mankind, can refer generically to humans or it can refer to the males. The Greek language has uh, specific forms. And this is the specific form for the adult males. And so when he is saying that the number of the men, he's talking about just the men. We're 5,000 now. So you add in the women and the children, how many do we have by faith now? 10,000, 15,000 at least. And so this church, despite the persecution, is thriving and flourishing. Didn't Jesus say that you'll do greater works than me? And it went from 120 believers in Jerusalem in Acts 1 to Acts 2, 3,000 total to Acts 4, 5,000 men 
probably 10 to 15,000. So it's just exploding, and it's out of their control. They're struggling, these religious leaders. Now, persecution fuels the fire of the church. We see it all through the New Testament and down through history. Wherever the church has undergone intense persecution, the church has thrived. Uh, for example, uh, the greatest example of that ever in history is probably communist China, 1949. Many of the Chinese pastors were killed, thrown in jail, Christian missionaries kicked out. And when we uh, kind of opened up enough to get a read on the church there in 1989, there was upwards maybe 90 million people, greatest revival ever. And that kind of thing happens. And so no wonder my mentor, Howard Hendricks, said, how do we launch a persecution? Now, I realize in the United States that the climate is getting more and more hostile to the gospel. But it has not yet reached the level of where we're thrown in prison or where our, our lives are on, in the jeopardy. There is persecution, but it's by means of ostracism, opposition, revilement, things like that. A little bit more subtle, but uh, it can get very intense, and it is around much of the world. And we'll look at Here's the first example. So they throw Peter and John in prison for the night because it was too late in the day. Now, you're Peter and John. You're thrown in jail by Annas, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all the, the power brokers, all the big dogs there. You're thrown in jail by the very people who had had Jesus executed three months before, four months before. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? You're thinking, I might be dying tomorrow. Are they intimidated? Are they uh, uh, deterred at bit? Not one bit. You see, they're new men. They've seen the risen Christ over 40 days. They saw him. They had been forgiven of all of their sins, and they believed God for it. And they're changed. And now they have the power of the Spirit in them. They're different. They're different. And they're unafraid. So the next day, in verse 7, the religious leaders asked, By what power or by what name did you do this? I mean, as if they didn't know. I mean, they're preaching Jesus. And then in verse 8, it's, it's interesting here. Look at that. It says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. And he's going to go on. But look at that. It just is telling us throughout the book of Luke that if you want to be a bold witness for Jesus Christ, you need to be filled with the Spirit. It's interesting. It doesn't even mention that Peter prayed, oh, God, fill me with your Spirit. Now, he may have done that, but we don't know. What we do know is that he must have been completely surrendered to Jesus Christ or he wouldn't be filled with the Spirit. If he had been full of self, couldn't be full of the, the Spirit of God. He was empty of self, be full of God. You want to be full of God, you need to be empty of self, fully surrendered. Now, I have talked about the power of the Spirit since we started. Acts 1-8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you since we started Acts. And you'll be my witnesses. But let me say this that the book of Luke and the book of Acts especially underscore that if you need to be bold with lost people, the, the power of the Spirit is absolutely essential. It's specifically powerful for this. Who among us doesn't need more boldness with lost people? I sure do. I sure do. Lord, fill me afresh with your Spirit. Okay, so Luke is just pointing out this is how... The early church lived. This is how we must live, by being completely empowered and filled with the Spirit. So, it says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And then he goes on in verses 8 through 10 to say, rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today concerning, get this, a good deed done to a crippled man. I mean, really, we're being charged for that. He says, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, that word you is emphatic. It's like whom you crucified, whom God delivered, whom God rose from the dead, raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. Peter is a completely different man than in the Gospels. At the end, when he's a scared, scared to death about this servant girl's knowing that he's following Jesus. He is completely changed. He's seen the risen Christ. He's filled with the Spirit, and he is completely forgiven. Now, if you get two or three of those, that's not enough. And my estimation, at least half of Christians today live riddled with guilt and condemnation, and by that means, Satan takes you completely out of the kingdom battle because you're swallowed with guilt. You, you don't feel like God's not going to use me. You've got to be able to to say no to Satan and receive the forgiveness and the grace of God if you're going to be used by God and enjoy God and everything else with God. If you are here this morning and you are living with low-grade or even high-grade guilt, don't take it out of here. Leave it at the cross of Jesus. Put it there right now. Jesus, you got it. Jesus, your death is good enough to take care of me. I'm not so high and mighty that my sins are so special that your blood can't cover them. I mean, don't be arrogant. Claim the grace of God like Peter did. New life. Regen could help. Okay. Where were we before I got all excited? Um. Okay, he's undeterred. He's putting it out there. And then he comes to verse 12, and he says this. He says, and, this is a verse that we all ought to memorize. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, if that was unpopular with those religious leaders, it is even more unpopular today. You will be persecuted if you believe this and if you'll give, uh, if you'll give voice to it. You will. It's like the cardinal sin today in our society. How arrogant of you to, to say that. Look, we don't say that Jesus is the only way to heaven because we see the variety of religions and we choose that one. That's not why. We do that because what you need saving from is your sin. That's the problem. You've got a sin problem. And there is only one person who died on a cross for your sin, who took care of your sin. What did the other religions do about sin? What's Hinduism do about sin? Nothing. All the rest, it's me trying hard and doing good works to try to earn God's favor. The gospel is you could never be perfect for a holy God. God did all the saving. He reached down. He sent his son. God incarnate to die in your stead, and we receive it. That's why we believe this. There, there's, it, the problem is sin. Nobody else took care of sin. 
Nobody else who is God and who is man and who died on a cross to take care of our sin. It's not that we are trying to be arrogant or, or, or unloving. Far from it. In all humility, in all love, we say that Jesus, that you need Jesus to save you. He is the one who died on the cross for your sin. Peter was the fearless. It's not Moses that can save you. You're the religious leaders of the nation, but the Mosaic law cannot save you. And today, in our society, uh, that, that is anathema. But we hold to the scriptures because people need it. It is the cure for cancer, for our spiritual disease. It is what they need. Jesus. There's salvation no one else. And then he goes on, and then we read in 13, okay, the religious leaders are just befuddled by this. And then in 13, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, uneducated does not mean they were dumb. It means they had no formal training like the rabbis, like they did. They were uneducated, ordinary People, I mean, for crying out loud, they were fishermen. <laughs> fishermen. When they saw that, do you, do you see in the text there in verse 13, it says they were astonished. They were like, oh, I'm trying to make sense of this. And then we read, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Because Jesus changes everything. When Jesus walks into the room, Jesus walks into your life, he changes everything. We're forgiven. We're free. We've got, we've got the, the power of the Spirit. We've served the resurrection, God. All righty. When Jesus came to our planet, for his closest disciples, he did not choose the wealthy, the powerful, the scholarly, and the famous. He chose the ordinary men. And isn't that God's way all through the Bible? Doesn't God use ordinary men and women who recognize their inadequacy and hence their desperate need to depend upon God. You can be too big for God to use, but you can never be too small for God to use. Here's the key. They had been with Jesus, and that makes all the difference, and they were transformed forever. I, I like the way that Rick Warren puts it about using ordinary men. He said this. He said, Abraham was old. Jacob was insecure, Leah was unattractive, Joseph was abused, Moses stuttered, Gideon was poor, Samson was codependent, Rahab was immoral, David had an affair and all kinds of family problems, Elijah was suicidal, Jeremiah was depressed, Jonah was reluctant, Naomi was a widow, John the Baptist was eccentric, I take comfort in that, Peter <laughs> was impulsive and hot-tempered, Martha worried, the Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus was unpopular. Thomas had doubts. Paul had poor health, and Timothy was timid. That is quite a variety of misfits. But God used each of them in his service. He will use you too if you stop making excuses. Now, amen. Okay, half of Christians, you know, are taken out by Satan's lies about being in guilt when the blood of Jesus already cleansed them. But there's another half, and, and uh, 
they, they okay, I just, I, I'm, God can't use me, man. I, I got divorced. I, I was a failure here. I went bankrupt here. I struggled with alcoholism there. And, and uh, you know, God could never use me. Church, that is such a lie of Satan. This is the kind of people God uses. Guys like me who struggle with mental disease. People like you who are messed up also. <laughs> who are broken. That's who God uses. God doesn't often use the smartest and the wealthiest and the brightest because so often those people are too big for their britches. They don't know how desperate they are on God. But you struggle with some mental disease for about 35 years, and you'll recognize how desperate you are. And I hope you too understand how desperate you are, no matter what gifts and resources you've got. It's a great verse. They were ordinary men, but they'd been with Jesus. Been with Jesus. All righty, more quickly toward the end, verse 14, we read, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, now listen to this. They're over there talking. They said, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Come to faith then. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they call them and charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. You know, the problem is Jesus, not, not Peter and John. It's always Jesus. Around the world, when people are persecuted for Christ, it's always Jesus, the problem. Now, keep in mind here, we see this in the Gospels also. They saw the miracle. They saw the person that everybody had seen. They had seen him begging and crippled man, and now he's standing right in front of them, but they do not believe. Listen, people reject Christ not for intellectual reasons, but for, for, but for matters of the will. When you look around at the world and you would like to see, you know, the Richard Hawkins and the brilliant scientists of the world, uh, I mean, um, Richard Feynman's and the brilliant scientists of the world come to faith, don't be surprised that they don't come to faith. People do not reject Christ because of the lack of evidence, but in spite of the sufficiency of the evidence. I mean, they saw him right there, but they weren't going to believe because their hearts were hardened against God, and they would have to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Your friends and neighbors, you're not going to argue them into the kingdom. Now, if they have honest questions, help them out, give them Tim Keller's book, Reason for God or Mere Christianity or something good like that, but you're not going to argue them into the kingdom, only God can open blind eyes and open dead hearts. So pray and share God, share the gospel with them. Pray and share the gospel. Okay, they're astounded. They're rejecting Jesus. Verse 19, they tell them, they just told them, you know, you better stop preaching Jesus. Peter, verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Uh, after the first service, one of our elders, Ken Womack, said, have you kept an update with Ravi and, um, and Sandy? Ravi was uh, Druze. That's a Muslim sect in the Middle East. They're not Christians. They're Druze. 
he comes to Christ and uh, his wife Sandy, who's Canadian, I think, uh, they, they live here, they go here. But now they're in Lebanon again because they have a ministry there. You know, Lebanon is in uproar today because the people have had enough of Iran controlling their country and of Hezbollah controlling their country. So there's revolution or there's a lot of upheaval in Lebanon. And so all the schools were shut down. Ravi and Ravi and uh, Sandy said just what they said, we will not shut our school. And they kept it open to pray. And, and the protesters came and wanted to hear about Jesus. And just found that out in the last service. Okay, they threatened them, and there's nothing they could do about it because everybody in Jerusalem knew this guy, and God done a miracle. All right, let's go from the first century start of persecution to, to current day. What's going on today around the world? Well, first of all, let me ask you a question. Um, how many Christians around the world would you say are under severe persecution where they could lose their life? Would that be, say, 100,000 people, 100,000 Christians? Or maybe 1 million people? Or maybe even 10 million people bigger than Houston? It is 245 million Christians around the world, that's one out of nine, who live in a place of severe persecution where they would easily get, they could get beaten, thrown in prison, or killed. And it happens so much more than we realize because CNN doesn't cover it. One out of nine Christians. The problem is bad and getting worse. And the two largest countries of the world, uh, it's getting bad in China again, and it's getting worse and worse in India, worse than in my lifetime. And uh, we've had a missionary family get kicked out of China or have to leave because of it. So it's getting worse. What are the worst countries in the world? Okay, here's 10 in order. Worst to least worse, lesser worse. Number one, North Korea. Make no mistake, that's not a benign dictatorship over there. You know that. It's horrific. Afghanistan. By the way, Afghanistan, uh, so many people there are tired of an empty, dead, fear-based religion that the church is growing in Afghanistan today, right now, as I speak, faster than any country in the world. Now, for a long time, it's been Iran. Now it's Afghanistan. That's a small church, so it's easier to get growth, but the church in Afghanistan, many Afghans, both outside of Afghanistan and inside, are coming to faith. Three Somalia, four Libya, five Pakistan, six Sudan. These are Muslim countries after North Korea. Uh, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, India. Seven of the top ten are it's a lot Islamic oppression. Now those are the, some of the worst, but there's many others. There's a top fifty list, and this is uh, carefully documented stats by an outside neutral party documenting these stats okay if you go to wood's edge if you give here if you serve here if you pray here if you're a part of our church family then you're involved with the persecuted church more than you know and uh, let me just give you some of the ways that we have been and are involved with the persecuted church first of all our very first missionaries ever i don't know if don and becky donaldson are in the house but uh, stand up if you are but don and becky donaldson 
Uh, they, uh, we sent them to the Middle East to a hospitality house at an undisclosed location. Where are you? All right, they're right there. See them right there? Oh, stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Right there. Now, keep standing. Keep standing. Okay, this is what they did. Okay, they start a hospitality house for Christian workers and missionaries who were in the hardest countries on the planet. I'm talking about Afghanistan, Yemen, uh, Kazakhstan, tough, tough places where their lives were in danger. Now, if you're a missionary in Afghanistan and you're three months uh, in that country, you need some relief and you need to be able to get out of there so for your sanity and your protection. So they would go to the house that they started. Now, we thought that when they go, you can sit now, Don and Becky, some, sometime after y'all might just want to meet them around there. Don and Becky, we thought there'd be three or four people a night, three or four nights a week. It's spread by word of mouth throughout the persecuted church so that 25 people a night, they were averaging 365 nights a year. Can you imagine having 25 people at your house for uh, night after night after night? Um, and it's still going on. Uh, Woods Edge is involved with it. After 10 years of founding it, it's probably the best hospitality house in the world. Uh, they came back to retirement, still very involved with the Middle East. So there's Don and Becky. Secondly, there's Guy Kasky. I'm going to have Guy, go ahead and stand up, if you don't mind. Guy, stand up. Guy and Kelly Kasky. You see Guy? He's a long way away. So um, um, Guy recently came on our staff as our movement's pastor. Now, you remember a movement is, is what we're seeing here in the book of Acts. Rapid spread of the gospel. There's technical definitions, but that's good enough. Rapid spread of the gospel. Okay, Guy uh, has been doing movements in Houston. In fact, he's the main one who's been doing movements in Houston for 20 years. And, you know, our church got involved seven years ago, but he's, you know, we're pups. He's been doing it 20 years. And he and his wife, Kelly, have been involved with Ethiopia and those countries for 20 years. They've made tons of trips there. And um, uh, Guy is now one of your pastors. Thank you, Guy. Okay, uh, a little bit more. After the service, you can come and talk to him more. Now, Guy's movement activity, disciple-making movement in Houston, especially involves the prisons, but involves also sectors of society. Some of you know Trade 9 doing hip-hop down in the inner city, other things. Uh, Ethiopia, they've made innumerable trips, you know, heavy persecution. We could throw up the pictures of Guy and his crew. Uh, the picture on your left, that's Guy in a village in Ethiopia. Now, you know, guys, Ethiopia, uh, communist and then heavily Muslim, but the church is thriving. That village that he's in, the whole village converted from Islam to Christ, and the mosque, two mosques closed down. And that's happening, that's happening over there. Uh, the middle picture, some of you recognize Ray and Sarah Vaughn. They were part of our church. Uh, Ray was discipled by Guy, and uh, they did a great work in Houston. But now we've sent them to Europe, but they're about to go farther to the Middle East because their real work is in the Middle East, North Africa, Central Asia, the persecuted church. And so they're about to move to the Middle East. On the, the far right, that is... Burhanu. Now, Burhanu is Ethiopian and Guy's closest partner in Ethiopia. When he was a teenager, he was tortured for his faith. Uh, when the communists took over and the church, you know, the Christians that were there had to go underground, you know, he starts an underground movement. He has started several movements. We're talking thousands of people in Ethiopia 
and surrounding countries. I mean, um, he's going to a very dangerous country next week to do training, and Guy would love us to pray for him. Um, recently, he was in Somalia, in Mogadishu, training the underground Christians. Can you imagine going into Mogadishu to train Christians? And uh, this is the kind of work that Guy has been involved with. And so he's on our staff. We're now involved with it. So you're very involved with the persecuted church. Uh, there are others uh, here that I've talked about in past times. I'm not going to say as much now, but Sergey. I'm not saying a last names right here because this is online. Sergey and Ivan, his brother-in-law, kicked out of a communist country, communist Muslim country in Central Asia for the gospel 12 years ago. They end up at Wood's Edge. They're having an incredible impact. Uh, thousands upon thousands of people in the persecuted church around the Eurasian world. Uh, Sergey, by the way, is one of our elders, just having incredible impact. Um, Ken, uh, Ken Womack who was at the earlier service, one of our elders, trains church planters and pastors in China and in Indonesia, other places uh, where the persecuted church is alive. Uh, Ken Bedgood. Ken, would you mind standing uh, and stay standing? This is Ken Bedgood. Now, you need to know about Ken. He founded and leads the Digital Bible Society, which is, you know, they're the largest group in the world that digitizes the Bible to get it into the persecuted church. So, you know, things that I cannot understand, but... Uh, that's Ken on the far left, his wife Deborah, Alex and Rania, Chris. They're all at Wood's Edge, and they're part of the team at the Digital Bible Society. So they can put the Bible and a whole library on a little microchip and get it into North Korea and places like that. So it is a huge part of what God's doing around the world. By the way, uh, North Korea, where the oppression is so much, Ken was at the border of North and South Korea sometime back, and he uh, was given this little New Testament. That's a New Testament. Uh, without looking at the screen, you probably can't see that. It's so tiny. But now their preferred Bible is the microchip. But if they don't have that, they've got to have a printed Bible. This is their Bible. It is really tiny. That print, besides being in Korean, is microscopic. <laughs> and... Um, but if, if they're found with this, their whole immediate family is immediately sent to a concentration camp for the rest of their life. I mean, they got brutal starvation and oppression in North Korea. And because they love Jesus, they take the risk. They take the risk. You're involved with the persecuted church. You pray, you give, you're part of this church family. Let me close with this story. It comes from one of Guy Caskey's good friends who goes by the pseudonym Nick Ripkin. A few years ago, Nick Ripkin, who also worked with Guy in Ethiopia, wrote a book that's had a lot of attention. It's called The Insanity of God. And he did a lot of research on the persecuted church around the world. One of his conversation was with a believer in Eastern Europe who had already been in prison for 17 years. Now he was out. And the believer said this, and we're going to pause a second to, to fully digest this. He said, I took great joy that I was suffering in my country so that you could be free to witness in your country. That blows me away. Then he said, don't you ever give up in freedom what we would never give up in persecution. 
And that is our witness to the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As our brothers and sisters, they're not asking for us to pray to deliver them from persecution, but to give them strength to be faithful in the midst of persecution. Because the gospel is thriving. You and I have got a challenge. We don't have any real live persecution of that degree. And so we can get casual and we can coast to heaven. May it not be for you and me. But may we be fully surrendered, fully obedient, and bold to be the witnesses in our land for the gospel. Stand with me. Lord God, we're sobered by our brothers and sisters around the world, and we do pray for all grace with them, all grace. And Lord, we pray for ourselves that you would ignite a fire in us for our street, for our neighborhood, for our city. And Lord God, that you would use us, that you would fill us with your spirit and give us boldness and grace to live our lives all in for Jesus. To speak up boldly for him. Give us grace. This is our prayer.